I want to invite you to join me in the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter number eight. This morning we're going to cover four chapters of the Bible as we will uh, continue our, our fast-paced move through the book of 1 Corinthians. Lord willing, next week we'll cover uh, chapters 12 through 14, which deal with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then we'll find ourselves in chapter number 15, which is on the resurrection, and we'll be there for nine weeks. And so we are going to press in on the resurrection. That's the main focus that we're working towards. But um, as a part of the journey, I thought it would be valuable for us to look at the entire book and, um, and grasp onto it. So next week, we'll look at chapters 12 through 14, and then we're going to have a special service on Labor Day. And so we'll have some information coming out about that as it gets closer. And then we'll have a couple of additional, I think Jared will preach a week, and then Michael's going to preach a week, and then we're going to get in in October, we're going to hit 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. So just to give you something to be looking forward to. Uh, we welcome you this morning. We want to welcome those who are watching online as well. We pray that uh, the Lord blessed you through the singing and will also bless you through the reading of his word. The first, uh, the first book of Corinthians is, is um, a book that deals with a lot of different, what we would call practical difficulties. And we've entitled this series, Crisis in the Church or a Church in Crisis. And so 1 Corinthians deals with a number of different crises in the church. And oftentimes we will take those, and really each chapter you can almost break it down into a different crisis. Uh, what we've tried to do and what I've tried to do with, during this series because of our time restraint is almost package it up in a little bit of a bigger package. Instead of dealing with each chapter, we're dealing with portions of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, it's been really helpful for me to see that there are, I mean, some, sometimes when I'm studying Scripture, I study such small portions of Scripture that I miss on the fact that there's a bigger perspective that's there. And then I almost go so deep with the little details in, the, in maybe a verse or five verses or whatever that I, that I overlook the fact that there is, there's more to the picture. And so this has been a really enjoyable um, study, a journey for me to take on a bigger portion of Scripture and to, to study it and in that way in light of finding a theme that, like this morning, we're going to deal with one theme that covers four chapters. And it may even surprise you when we get into it. You may see something that's like, wow, never saw that before. And it's often because we are, sometimes we've got the, you know, we've, we've zoomed in so deep that we've missed some of the peripheral things that are there. And so... I hope it'll be a blessing to you as we will actually read all four of those chapters this morning as we go through the message. So the first crisis that we dealt with in Corinth was the crisis of division. It uh, covers the first four chapters of the book. The second crisis is the crisis of liberalism, and it covers chapters number five through seven. And then the third crisis, which we'll look at this morning, covers chapters nine through, or eight through 11, and this is the crisis of idolatry. And we will unpack that for you in, in a few moments here. The reason, I refer to the, the reason I refer to the crisis in these chapters as idolatry is the main idol in Corinth was self. 
And you'll find that throughout the entire book, that each struggle that people were dealing with, each challenge that people had, had something to do with some type of a, a selfish perspective on life, whether it be choosing between the Apostle Paul or or Apollos or Peter or Christ or whether it be between taking your brother to court in chapter number six or chapter number five committing sexual immorality in the church and just allowing it to to um, permeate the church and affect the church and impact the church in a negative way all of these things are just they're just it's just one selfishness after another even when we get into the spiritual gifts, the problem with the spiritual gifts is not the spiritual gifts, it's the fact that they're being used selfishly. And in this passage of Scripture, we see this, this, these, these four chapters deal with this same idea, but this time it's idolatry. And the issue is that the worship of self is taking place and it's being manifested in several different ways. Specifically in these four chapters, it's being manifested in what I would call insensitivity. Three things that are constant in these four chapters. Three things that you will see in each one of the chapters that's important to note as we dive into them is number one is eating meat or eating food. Um, Four chapters about eating food in the Bible, right? Can we not relate to that? Like, can, we, can we connect to... We like to eat food, right? All of us like to eat food. And so three, four chapters that are going to deal with, in some way, the idea of eating food. In each one of the chapters, you have idolatry dealt with. And then, in each one of the chapters, you have sensitivity towards others. Okay, you have sensitivity towards others. How do, we, how do we act? How do we live? How do we function in light of the people around us? Or how should we function in light of the people around us? Most of us can relate to eating as a natural and common thing, something that, we, that most of us do without thinking. And we just kind of do it. Eating is in many ways like breathing, right? You, you do it, but you don't think a lot about it. It's not something that you are meditating on throughout the day. It's kind of just a natural thing. It's something that you do, uh, you know, two or three times a day, or some people maybe more than that. But it's just kind of natural flow of your life. You don't think about it a lot. And I bring that up because it's important because this, this idea of eating being in each one of these chapters is placed there, not because the Apostle Paul is placing a major emphasis on eating, but because he wants us to know how common and, 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 and indifferent and not thought of it is. He really wants to go down to the very basic level of things that we do without thinking, it's what he's pressing us to do. He wants us to see that the things that you do without thinking, right, the, just the common, indifferent, unimportant, insignificant things in life, like eating and drinking, right? You ever thought about why does the Lord say, um, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? It's like, well, what does eating and drinking matter? What he's doing is, is he's pressing us to the very basics of life. He's pushing us to understand that the insignificant things that you look at in life, are, they matter. They mean something. They shouldn't be seen as insignificant or unimportant because they have an impact. And that's what he's pressing us to. So the idea of food, eating and drinking, and he's, again, over and over again in the text, he's going to refer to eating and drinking. 
He's, he's not really pressing in on eating and drinking like a lot of us want to, to, to maybe draw out if we're just focusing on a little piece. He's really pressing us to look at the, the, the common things in life, the, the insignificant things in life, the things that you just do without thinking. That's what he's pressing us to. So eating is meant to reflect on small, on small and indifferent things. Uh, things that people say there's just, there's no right, you know, we would call them maybe amoral. There's no right or there's no wrong to them. They're not really spiritual. They have no spiritual impact. You just kind of do them. And I, and I would submit to you that all of us have things like that. It may not be eating and drinking, but it might be something else that we do in our life that we just do without thinking. And it, Paul is going to press us to think about the things that you don't think about right now to think about them. So eating is meant to reflect on something that's small and indifferent. In other words, eating is meant to focus on something that we would say has no spiritual ramifications at all. He uses eating in these four chapters to point out the fact that small things matter and that, and that Christians should be considerate of others even in small things. Several other passages of Scripture Jared read this morning from Romans 14, which is a really good passage about this same idea of being considered of others. And what, is he, what does he press on? Eating and drinking. Why does he press on eating and drinking? Is he really concerned about eating and drinking? Or is he pressing us to think about others at the most basic level of life? Is he pressing us to think about others to the, to the smallest and most insignificant and what we would call the most indifferent thing that we do, which is eating and drinking? He's pressing us saying, listen, you can't do that anymore as a Christian without thinking about its impact. You can't do it anymore. That's what he's pressing the church at Corinth to think about and consider. Go down to the basic level of your life Everything that you do without thinking and realize that you need to think about it now. Because it matters. It's important. Matthew 24, speaking about the last days, the Lord says, For as in the days of Noah, even so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were just going through life, doing, the, doing life without what? Without thinking. Think about this. That made sense, right? Without thinking, but think about this. 1 Corinthians 2, the Bible says that a spiritual man will discern everything. That's what it says. The natural man doesn't discern anything, but the spiritual man discerns everything, but he doesn't discern everything based upon carnal knowledge. He discerns everything based upon spiritual knowledge. In other words, the spiritual man is going to compare everything that he does in life to that which is spiritual. He has this, when a person gets saved, they have this new filter that enters into their life and that filter is such that everything goes through, how is this, how is this, spiritually relating to the world. Everything goes through that filter, even the smallest things of eating and drinking. Right? And again, put your own stuff into that, into that the things that you don't think about, down to the very basic things of life. 
The thesis of today's message or the thesis statement is simply this. Consider others, and this is what we're going to see through these four chapters. Consider others even in the small things. Consider others even in the small things because they can lead a person into idolatry. Consider others even in the small things because they can lead someone else into idolatry. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that that is an um, unacceptable evil that will lead a person into condemnation. And we must think about this in light of a quote from John Calvin who said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. So we've got to know this, that everybody that's going through life, their heart is constantly trying to make idols. Their mind and their imagination is constantly trying to develop idols, things after their own imaginations that they can worship or bow to. They're constantly trying to do that with food and drink. That's the smallest thing, but do not people make idols out of food and drink? Do they? Just shake your head or... Amen is fine here. Do they not make idols out of food and drink? So what he's saying is at the very basic level, at the very foundational, fundamental, bottom of the road, things you don't think about, people are making idols out of them. Therefore, Christians cannot take them lightly because if they do, they may press somebody into what? They might press somebody into idolatry. And eating and drinking don't really matter. They're insignificant. But adultery does matter, doesn't it? Adultery is significant. It is important. It is condemning. That is why the Apostle Paul deals with it the way that he does. The heart is a human... The human heart is, a, is an idol factory. It's making idols constantly. And therefore, this is why Christians have to be careful. So that brings us to chapter, that's, a, that's the introduction this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to literally read through the four chapters and we're going to break in the middle of each chapter and I'm going to give you some things to think about, just some, some observations from this chapter. But, but I'm really going to try to read it in such a way that, you, that, that encourages you to think as I read it. Because honestly, it, it all makes sense. I mean, it's like, it's just clear. It's just obvious what is here and what is being said. And I really don't even need to make a lot of comments once we get into it, because I think it will speak for itself. So, so I hope if you have your Bibles, you know, turn there and just follow along, because it will be a lot of reading this morning, and I, and I would love to have you see it and hear it and uh, see, it, see it kind of processed through your mind. The Bible says in verse number 1, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. And this idea of knowledge, the, the, the concept that he's referring to is that we know that we all possess understanding of what an idol is. And he's going to explain that more later. It's the idea of liberty. We know that we all have liberties. Amen? We all have liberties in Christ. He says we all have liberties. We all possess a knowledge. He says this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But anyone who loves, or any, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So there, there's a knowledge that's not connected with love, a knowledge that's not connected with application, a knowledge that's not connected with, with how you function in life. He said, this type of knowledge is just going to puff you up. Or there's a liberty that you have that if you view that liberty in a selfish way, it's not going to be helpful to anybody around you. It's just going to make you proud. And you see people going around in the Christian movement today, and they're like, you know what, we can, we can do that. We have liberty to do whatever we want to do. And they walk around their, their nose up in the air about, hey, look, we got liberty. That, that's what he's talking about here. He says, if your liberty doesn't drive you to loving God and loving others. It's simply going to make you full of yourself. That's what he's saying. But he says, but if you love God, if your liberty drives you to a loving intimacy with God, then it's not about what you know. Now it's about the fact that you, have been, you are known of God. And listen to me. The Christian life is not as much about what you know as it is about who he knows. It's about those who are in a relationship with him through his son that causes him to know them in an intimate and personal way. Verse number four, he's going to go right to eating again. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For for although... They may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, we know that there are no such thing as, as other gods. Christians know that there is one God. The world has created a thousand different gods, but Christians know that there is one God, right? There are no such thing as idols to Christians because we serve the one true God. So what are you saying here? We have this knowledge that we serve the one true God, and therefore idols don't mean anything to us. Verse number seven, watch what he says. However, not all possess this knowledge. And remember the word knowledge there, we could replace it with the word liberty. Not all possess this liberty or understanding of their liberty in Christ. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. In other words, food is indifferent. Food doesn't matter. You're not going to become better by eating certain foods, and you're not going to be worse by eating certain foods. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. Right? It has no, it has, again, the idea of it is, is that it is not, it is an indifferent thing. It's something that we don't think about. It's something that we just do. Verse number two. Nine, but take care that this right of yours, this liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge 
or liberty or understanding of liberty eating in an idol's temple because you don't see that it's an idol's temple. You don't even recognize the idol there because you serve the one true God. Right? You don't see it as an idol, so you have no problem going in. You have liberty in Christ. It's not, it's not idolatry to you. It's not a problem for you. You can eat that meat, and it's fine. Right? So what are you saying? If you, if anyone sees you, verse number 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his con- if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols and get this, he believes that that food is, idolatry, is an idol. He doesn't have the same knowledge that you have. He does not have the same understanding of idols and liberty in Christ. He doesn't have that same, idol, that, that same understanding, but he sees you as a mature believer, and he sees you doing this thing that for him has always been idolatry, and his conclusion is it must be, it must be what? It must be okay. That's why I go back to chapter number 5. The apostle Paul says, Get the man out of the church that's living in adultery because others will be defiled by him. Get the man out of the church who is, who is involved in drunkenness or greed or any type of sin that is going to permeate the church. Get them out of the church because they're going to destroy the body. He says, if anyone sees you who are a mature believer, who understands, he's not even saying that you're doing anything wrong. You're eating meat offered to idols that you don't see as idols. You don't see it as a problem. The issue is, is do you care for others more than you care for yourself? Are you willing to put aside what, what is your liberty so that you can protect somebody else's conscience? Or are you going to press them into doing what is your liberty but is not their liberty? Verse number 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Powerful words, isn't it? And the brother for whom Christ died, he doesn't stop there. He said, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. So even though what you do is not sinful, the Bible makes it clear the impact of what you do is sinful. Verse number 13, the Bible says, therefore, and and, and let me just say this to you as well, another comment. It doesn't say you sin against your brother. It It says you sin against your brother, but ultimately the end of the chapter says you sin against whom? Sin against Christ. We sin against Christ. Therefore, he says, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. What a powerful statement. If, if meat makes my brother stumble, if, it, if me eating meat makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. What a humble heart the Apostle Paul had. What a caring and compassionate heart that he would consider even eating and drinking being such, such a, 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 a means 
or, or something that he could sacrifice to protect his other brother's conscience and to live, to live, to live um, always considerate of other people. Always considerate of other people. He says, if eating meat, if it offends people, then I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is a, this is a small thing. I wrote this down at the end of chapter number one. Small things matter because our liberty or our knowledge of our liberty can push others or can, can make us or push us to be a stumbling block to the, to the weaker Christian. And I, I don't, listen, I don't even, I don't really want us to even think about meat offered to idols this morning. And because, and, and I mean, honestly, I don't know that we can honestly say that that's a real issue in our culture, Right? But man, there are other things, aren't there? There are other practical things that for us might be perfectly fine. For somebody else, they might be totally destructive. We might be able to do it freely and with all liberty, worshiping Christ, praising Christ, glorifying Christ in it, and somebody else sees us doing it, and it might totally blast their faith out of the water. That's what he's talking about. These people, the, the, the people in Corinth, Paul is really rebuking them because that was their attitude. Hey, I, I have liberty to do this, so I'll do whatever I want. And you know something? Listen to me, honestly. It is true they had full liberty. They could do whatever they want. The Apostle Paul is not saying you don't have liberty in Christ. He's saying, listen, don't, lose, don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but use your liberty to serve others. That's what he's saying. The solution is to be careful and sacrificial that your liberty is not a license for others, is not, that your liberty is not a license for others to practice idolatry. Be careful and sacrificial that your liberty doesn't become a license for others to practice idolatry. That you don't hurt other people with your liberty. Chapter number two he deals with this, something similar, and we're going to read through it. Apostle Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those of you who examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And I just would encourage you, if you're taking notes this morning or highlighting, just highlight the word right there because chapter number nine has this word um, 10 plus times, I believe it is. He's going to talk about their right. Do we not have rights? As Christians, do we not have rights? The Apostle Paul is saying, as 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 an apostle, I got rights. we, We like that terminology, don't we? As an American, I got rights. Let's see what he says about that. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the rights to eat and drink? Basic level stuff. Do we not have the rights to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. The Apostle Paul is now dealing with the wages. It's like, who works and doesn't get paid for it? 
We have a right to get paid for what we work for, right? Did Apostle Paul have the right to say what he's saying? Was anything that he said about their rights wrong? No. But we'll see how he concludes. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is God, is it for oxen that God is really concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing with the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it much to ask that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have made no use of these rights. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. But I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this with my own will, I have a reward. But if it's not in my will, or I do it against my will, I will be entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so that not so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Watch what he says here in verse 19. Powerful, powerful words. For though I am free from all, I make myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became like a Jew, in order that I might win Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those outside the law I became as outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Let me say this to you. This is very important. The Apostle Paul is dealing with his rights here. And he says, I want you to note something, because some people say that the Apostle Paul is just becoming like anybody so that he might win them. And don't miss the fact that everything the Apostle Paul does in this text is sacrificial. He's not giving in to sin. He's not giving in to the flesh to win people. He's not becoming more worldly so that he might win the world. That's not the emphasis of this text. The emphasis of the text is the Apostle Paul was willing to sacrifice every right that he had, every liberty that he had, anything that he had, he was willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Note the end of this passage of Scripture and notice this, that it all goes together. I've often heard this next portion preached separate, and it is separate, but it's together. 
he says, do you not know that those who run in a race, do you not know that, that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. What race is he talking about? What has he just told them? What race is he talking about? He's talking about winning souls. The race that we're in is to win souls. It's to do whatever it takes to win souls. It's to give our life to the gospel. The proverb says, he that winneth souls is wise. The apostle Paul says, do you not know that everyone who runs in the race, that everyone running in the race to win souls, everybody runs, but you run more and you run harder that you might win the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as if one beating the air. I do not, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest any, lest after preaching to others, I myself becomes disqualified. The second chapter deals with this. Small things matter when your rights can push you to be a hindrance to your eternal purpose. Small things matter when your rights can push you to become a hindrance to your own eternal purpose. Know what your purpose is. What is the race that you're in? Is it a race for comfort? Is it a race for pleasure? Is it a race for entertainment? Is it a race to have all of the things that we want? Is that the race that we're in? Because listen to me, we're running well in that race. But is is it the race for souls to be saved? Are we running so that people might come to know Jesus? Is that why we're running this race? Literally, folks, is that why God left us here? Did he leave us here so that we could have pleasure and enjoyment? Or did he leave us here so that we could win souls to him? The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not slack concerning his promise towards us, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Why are we still here? It's that we might win souls. We need to know the race that we're in. Why were we put on the earth, and why were we left on the earth? What is the purpose of our being here? It's not for our comfort. Matter of fact, listen to me. If we're running the race of winning souls, it doesn't matter what physical condition you're in. It doesn't matter what health condition you're in. It doesn't matter what financial condition you're in. You can accomplish your race no matter any of those things. Here's what the devil has got us to do. He's got us focused on what condition we're in, what health we're in, what financial statuses we're in. He's got us focused on all of these things because now we're running a different race completely. He says, run to win. Run to win what? Run to win the race of winning souls. We know the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go ye into all the world and make disciples. Literally, as you are going into the world, make disciples of people for Christ. And then he just says three things about running to win. He says, sacrifice, give up all of the things that hinder, get this, Give up all of the things that hinder his purpose for you. We're quick to give up all the things that hinder our purpose for us. But he says, give up all, like the Apostle Paul, like, hey, I became weak so I could win the weak. I became like under the Jewish law so I could could win the Jews. 
I became under the Gentiles' law so that I could win the Gentiles. I mean, he was just like, whatever it takes to win people for Jesus. Be intentional. Don't beat the air. Know why you're doing what you're doing. Know why you're here. I'm not a boxer that's going to go into the ring and just beat the air. I got a goal in mind. I got a purpose. I'm here to do something. And I'm here to win souls. And you're here to win souls. And then discipline. He says, no one, no one competes to win that isn't very disciplined. And I will just say this to you. You will never, none of us will ever accomplish what God's purposes are for our lives if we don't have strong discipline. Because literally you're going to have to tell your body no. Because what your body wants to do is the same thing that someone else's idol is. And you're not to do what's going to push somebody else into idolatry. Go on to chapter number three. Run to win. Run the race of winning souls. Verse one, chapter number three. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus. If you missed the theme of the first four verses, it's that we all go through the same things. Just note that. Everybody goes through the same things. He's like, Pastor, you just don't know what I've gone through. Yeah, I know what you've gone through because we all go through the same things. They might manifest themselves differently, but we all go through the same things. Moses went through the same things that we went through. Abraham went through the same things that we go through. Adam and Eve went through the same things that we went through. We all go through the same things. So if the devil has you convinced that you're somehow off on an island by yourself going through something that nobody else goes through, and therefore you become inactive in sharing the gospel with people, tell the devil he's a liar and get back into the race. But Pastor John, I just am physically am not capable of racing anymore. Yes, you are physically capable of racing because you race for souls. Everybody, that's what he's saying here. He's saying everybody, he's going to go on to talk about the fact that how people let their problems press them into being, press them into compromising, which presses other people into idolatry what he's going to say. I could just paraphrase it for you. All of us go through the same thing. So when your difficulty becomes big, don't let your, the devil put you out on the island by yourself and make you feel sorry to where you move into compromise, to where you push people into idolatry. Listen, folks, we as Christians are being watched every day. Others are watching us to see if our God is real. We sang a song, uh, Ron led us in the first song this morning, that there's nothing impossible for our God, right? It was What's it called, Ron? There's nothing our God can't do. Man, those are great words. But listen, where are, they, where are they at on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? Where are they at? Because it's easy to sing a song but not let it rip and grip our lives. There's nothing, I believe that wholeheartedly. But man, by God's grace, I want to show that on Monday to the people that I'm around. And Tuesday, I want to show that to them because they're going through the same thing that I'm going through. Verse number five, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. 
Why was God not pleased with all of these people who went through all of the same things? Because they were overtaken. They were overthrown in the wilderness. They gave in to the struggles that they were going through. They compromised in the midst of difficulty. And listen to me, folks. Is that not the time that we most likely compromise? Is it not true that in the difficulties of life, it presses us into doubt? It presses us into fear? It presses us into complaining? It presses us into murmuring? All of those things that God says, don't do those things. For us, those things, we have God, yes, and and we're going to heaven. So it really doesn't matter if we're afraid. It doesn't matter if we murmur and complain, except for the person who's not saved and watches us do it. Right? Because it's condemning for them because they don't know Jesus. And we call ourselves Christians and we present to them a Jesus that's not big enough to take care of our issues. So they never trust him and we press them into idolatry. That's what he's saying here. That's the emphasis of this text is your testimony matters. The Bible says, nevertheless, most of, for most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, or we may not be overcome as they were. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people. Listen, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What's that? That's basic. It's the fundamental basic things that people made into an idol. That was their idolatry. Do not be, he says, we must not, in verse number eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 were slain or fell in a single day. We must not test Christ. If you go back to numbers, you'll see how they test. You know how they tested Christ? Do you know how they tested Christ? They said he's not sufficient. He's not enough. He's not capable. That's what they said. Do not test Christ. I think we're testing Christ. I think as Christians in the 21st century culture, we test Christ often. I do. It says don't. Don't test Christ. Don't challenge his ability. Because why? Because you're going to press people into idolatry. You're going to press them. You're going to push them into idolatry. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We're mindful of the fact that the two main things that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the children of Israel in the wilderness was grumbling and complaining. Why is that such a big deal? They went through hard times, didn't they? You know, it's like you've you got a big red sea right in front of you and you're, you know, it's difficult. Let's complain, let's murmur, let's figure out a way. And the Lord's like, no, that's not the right answer. You're pressing the people in the wrong direction. Verse 11 Now these things happened to us as an example, and they were written for our instruction, 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but that is common to man. God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. And again, what is he saying here is no temptation. You've never faced anything that other people haven't faced. No, nobody has. We've all faced the same things, and we need to be strong in facing them. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread who... We who are many are one body, and we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participant in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. What he's going to do is he's going to press this idea of idolatry and pushing people into idolatry is not, a, is not an insignificant thing because what you're pushing them into is demonology. When they eat and drink as if it's been offered to an idol, what he's saying is, is they're participating in demon activity. Small thing or big thing? That's why our eating things offered to idols that presses them to eat things in an adulterous way is not something we should ever take lightly. And again, folks, it's not just about eating and drinking. He says, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provide, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And notice this, he's not saying, he's not telling them you cannot partake of the Lord's and and that of demons and saying to them, well, you're safe because you partook of the Lord's table, so now you can't partake of the demon's table. He's not, he's not, this is not an encouraging passage. He's saying you cannot, as you participate in the demon worship, you cannot also worship God. It's uh, Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. And he says if you do, you provoke, provoke the Lord to jealousy, and that's not a good thing to do. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Quoted again from earlier in the chapter, in chapter 6, I believe. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good. Note that, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question or in the, on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if one, invites an un, if one of the unbelievers invites you over to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat therefore whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered as a sacrifice. If you know that they are struggling with something, 
What does he say to do? If they are literally offering it to you, if you're sitting at a table with a friend and they say, well, I just came from the sacrifice of this idol and I brought this meat with me and it's from that sacrifice and it's something that I'm involved with, then what should you say to them? I will not eat. I will not destroy your soul in this moment. Then he said, do not eat. For the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should the liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced? Because that of which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not taking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be, what's the next word? That they may, literally he's saying, when you eat and drink, do it so that, so that the people eating and drinking across from you will be drawn to Christ. Small things matter, number three. Small things matter because your struggles can push you to compromise, which can lead you to pressing others to adultery. Don't hinder the conscience of others because of compromise, because of compromise in your difficulty. Do all things for God's glory, give no reason for offense, and seek the well-being and salvation of others. Chapter number 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But everyone who, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is a shame for her head, if it, since it is a sh- the shame as if her head were shaven. For if a, wife were not co- if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair off. Or cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to cover his head, since he is for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, and woman from man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the, Lord's, in, the Lord, in the Lord, women is not independent of men, nor man of women. woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge it for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman have long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the, follow, in the following instructions, I do commend you, because when you come together, it is not the better, but for the worse. I'm going to stop there, give you a few comments. This, all of this text about women covering their heads... Women shaving their heads, men having long hair, women having the short hair, all of this is meant to give us that basic, we're going down to the basics. Cutting your hair, listen, cutting your hair matters as a Christian. That's what he's saying here. He's telling us, and it's, it might be confusing 
It might be confusing as we read through it, and there's a lot of, of, of difficult things in there, but what he's saying is, is when you cut your hair, and it, it represents for a woman, in this culture it represented for a woman that she was submissive to her husband. And a man having short hair represented that he was in authority. These are not questionable things. These are Bible truths. The issue wasn't the long hair or the short hair. The issue was, what were we portraying? That's what he's saying is, is every little thing matters. Eating and drinking, cutting your hair and, and, and not cutting your hair. All of this stuff matters because you are manifesting the glory of God. And then he goes on to eating again. And I'm not going to read it because of time. But we've read it on several occasions with this, the Lord's Supper. And he brings, he breaks out. He says at the, the beginning of it, he's like, you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, but some of you eat and you're full and stuffed and overwhelmed. They had, it was like a meal in the Bible day. Some of you eat as if you're eating you know, at the local buffet, right? It's like fill your plate as full as you can and get all that you can. And while the poorer people on the backside of the line didn't get anything, and he's like, how is that reflective of the, of, of the Lord's Supper? Because the Lord's Supper isn't just about bread and drink. The Lord's Supper is about loving people. How can you say that you're communing, you're communing about the Lord's Supper, which is about the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection and the new life that he gives when you're letting the rich people get in the front of the line and pile their plates full of food and the poor people are in the back of the line and they're not getting anything? He's like, how is that representation of Christ? And the answer is simple. It's not. It's not. That's what he's, that's what he's reprimanding them for. We get into this and we, we use that text every time we come to the Lord's Supper. We use it to say, here's how you should do it. You know, we're gonna, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's good and it's there, but listen, that's not the overriding purpose of this text. It's like, stop doing communion for yourself. Stop eating for yourself. Stop drinking for yourself. Stop cutting your hair for yourself or not cutting your hair for yourself. Stop dressing for yourself. Think of others in the basic things of life. We, we, I hear this, and I love this, and I'm thankful for this. I hear it from most of the people in this church. We want to be a church that serves others and loves others. Listen, this is a message that we need to hear because this is how you do it. This is how you do it. I mean, you can't just say the words, and the Lord says, okay, listen, you want to serve others, then you sacrifice everything so that you can serve us. Uh, well, okay, Lord, let's, uh, let's rewind this thing a little bit and reel it in. I don't want to give up everything for others. Well, that's what Christ did. Am, am I off? We want to be a loving church that serves others, right? It's going to take ultimate sacrifice and discipline in our lives. In every aspect, even down to our very ceremonies that we perform, have to be a display of Christ. That's what he's talking about at the end of this passage. Small things matter when your traditions don't reflect well on Christ, and they push people away from him rather than drawing them into him. In your traditions, ceremonies, and even the small things of life like eating and drinking, remember that you represent Christ. Make sure that you don't push people away from him, but rather consider them. Be patient, be gentle, and try to draw them into Christ. In conclusion, 
these four chapters call believers to a selfless, sacrificial, disciplined, and intentional life. We are to consider the spiritual needs of, all, of others more important than our own liberties, our own rights, our own troubles, and our own traditions. And we're to do it with the goal, with, the, with, the, with two goals, one of protecting the conscience of the weaker brother and the other of bringing people to Christ. Remember this, your liberty can push somebody. If we, we have this mentality that, man, if we just, we just display our liberty in Christ, people will come. You know what you'll do if you display, if you embrace your liberty in Christ as if it's some kind of a right, what you will do is you will push people into idolatry. That's what you'll do. That's what he's dealing with here. If you want to serve people, learn to be sacrificial on the things that they worship. And that will draw them to Christ. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambitions or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I encourage you as you go home today to read Romans 14 as Jared opened the service with a small portion of it, but it does lean towards this passage of Scripture. Everything we do, even in the small things, let us be considerate of how it reflects on Christ to others and what it might encourage them to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word and, and for this instruction. We, we claim to want to be a church that is serving others. We want to, to love them. We want to be gracious and kind towards them. We want to reach them with the gospel. And yet, Lord, maybe we, um, maybe we need to just consider some of these things, some of the sacrifices that go into that. I pray that these, this passage of Scripture would, would be alive to us this morning, that we would go home thinking about it, meditating on it, and seeking to serve others the best that we can. We love you, Lord, and are thankful that we have the privilege to serve you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen.